Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. Research, reporting, industry analysis, information, and tokenomics. Welcome to Thriller Insights. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls from around the world, gather around. It's time for Thriller Insights, today is September 27th, 2019, and we are talking beyond Bitcoin, the repo market meltdown. And the idea for this episode came from Caitlin Long. She is probably one of the most um, insightful Wall Street crypto investors that we have in this space. She wrote an article for Forbes that uh, just hit crypto Twitter and everybody was talking about it. And I thought it was extremely fascinating. The title of her article was called The Real Story of the Repo Market Meltdown and What It Means for Bitcoin. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can check out the article. It's a fantastic read. But she starts off by saying that last week the financial system ran out of cash. That grabbed me <laughs> when I saw that. She goes on to say it was a modern version of a bank run and it's not over yet. Stepping back, it reveals two big things about financial markets. First, U.S. Treasuries are not truly risk-free assets, as most consider them to be. And second, big banks are significantly undercapitalized. She goes on to say that somebody, probably a big bank, needs cash so badly that it has been willing to pay a shockingly high cost to obtain it. That's layman's explanation of what's happening. Interest rates have betrayed common sense. Interest rates in the repo market should be lower than rates in unsecured markets, for example, because repos are secured by assets and thus supposedly lower risk. But repo rates spiked way above unsecured lending rates last week, even for risk-free collateral such as U.S. Treasuries. Yeah, it's amazing to think that you have the U.S. potentially defaulting on its debt obligations, right? Like, is this real life? <laughs> Take a listen to Caitlin Long as she explains what exactly is going on. The repo market, as you know, I came from Wall Street. I spent a lot of time in and around that market. And it's how the big banks fund themselves. They fund themselves overnight by pledging securities on their balance sheet as collateral for loans. Back to this whole lien concept we were just talking about, right? It's, it's what's called secured financing. Well, there were, there were a couple of banks last week that were so desperate for financing that they were willing to pay 10% overnight on clean collateral like a U.S. Treasury. Okay, so what does that mean? It means the financial system ran out of cash. Financial system ran out of cash last week, and the Fed had to pump more in by basically diluting all of us dollar holders to the tune of, I think it was 58 billion the first day and it was 75 billion on Friday. Um, and, and, and so basically it's propping up zombie banks. She said zombie banks. And you're probably like me, what is a zombie bank? I've never heard of such a term before. Well, it's a financial institution which is insolvent, but which continues to operate through government support. Huh. What does that sound like? That sounds awfully like socialism. 
I'm not trying to get political, but it sounds like socialism for banks. A financial institution which is insolvent, but which continues to operate through government support. That is a zombie bank. Am I the only one here not laughing? Now, um, a, a little esoteric here. If you think about a U.S. Treasury, that's supposed to be a so-called risk-free asset. We all know it's not, but, um, but, but, but that's what the financial system thinks. So why is it that somebody was willing to pay 10% to be able to finance on a risk-free asset that has a very, very low interest rate? There's something really upside down on that. And the answer is that, of course, we know that those assets are not risk-free they are the most fractionally reserved assets in the financial markets, U.S. Treasuries are. Um, the IMF did a, uh, an, an analysis of government bonds and estimated that there are three people who think they own every government bond outstanding. And so um, the truth of the matter is that those things are fractionally reserved just the same way traditional banks are fractionally reserved, which means that they are all technically insolvent. Um, and the Fed props them up by keeping them liquid, but they are insolvent. So this is all super great, you know, teaching moments for us in the crypto world to explain to people. It is pretty scary what happened last week. Now, the Fed can always pump, you know, can bail out the financial system by pumping in cash, which is what it did. Um, but we came that close. We, we, you know, the fact that we came that close to a real problem should be making everyone pause. And I think it is, by the way. A lot of people are talking about this. It's a great teaching moment, but, um, but I, will, I will also say, I went back and looked at how fast Lehman Brothers collapsed. Lehman's stock was about $18 the week before it went to zero. That's unusual, right? If you think about like the retail companies, like I was looking at JCPenney the other day, a great old company and its stock is trading at like 75 cents, right? But it has been for a long time. So the market is saying, look, you know, the chance this company survives is not very high when the stock price goes down that way, that goes down that far. But it took years to get there. In Lehman's case, it took a week to get from 18 to zero. Um, and so what does that tell you? That tells you things can unwind very fast in the financial system. And so a company that appears solvent one day can be out of business the next. And, and the reason is because they lose access to the repo market. It, it is ground zero for financial services um, um, instability. And so that's why the, the folks in the know are looking at this going, uh, you know, we saw this coming a long time ago. It was not a surprise. This has been building in this most recent episode for months. It just happened to break into the headlines this past week. But uh, it should make everybody really nervous about keeping assets in the mainstream financial system. So what stops them from doing this? Like, can they continue to do this? This would be my question, right? Well, turns out they can. Because as long as there's unencumbered assets out there, they are free and clear to do what they want. And if you don't know what an unencumbered asset is, let me explain it to you. Unencumbered refers to an asset or property that is free and clear of any encumbrances, such as a creditor claims or liens. An unencumbered asset is much easier to sell or transfer than one with encumbrance. Examples of typical unencumbered assets are a house without an associated mortgage or other lien, a car on which the automobile loan has been paid off, or stocks purchased in a cash account. Now, understanding unencumbered means that creditors do not have claims to assets that are unencumbered. 
as there are no associated debts relating specifically to those assets. This results in these assets being the full property of the person or persons listed as the owners in an official capacity, such as a title or a deed. Unencumbered assets are not listed as collateral on any debt and are not subject to competing claims, such as past due property taxes. And as long as there's these unencumbered assets that have no claims to them, well, guess what? They can keep printing more money and assigning more debt because cash is a debt instrument. Well, they can do that all over and over again as long as there's unencumbered balance sheet to support the continued issuance of debt, which is really what's happening. Every time the Fed pumps in reserves, they have fancy words for it, right? But what it really is, is it's diluting all of us dollar holders by issuing more dollars. And as we all know, a dollar is a debt-based instrument, so we're just issuing more debt. That's all. That's all that's happening. At some point, we won't be able to continue to do that. But I will say one other thing, um, don't, don't, don't assume that just because this is happening that the dollar is going to collapse tomorrow. There's going to be one hell of a head fake dollar rally. And the reason is that all these dollars that have been issued in the repo market primarily, um, a lot of them have been issued overseas. So there's at least $5 trillion that no one really knows how much um, was issued overseas outside of the direct regulation by the Fed. Um, and so what the, if you think about what that is, if a dollar is issued overseas, it's actually the U.S. dollar. And part of what's happening now, because there's not very, very good um, funding available in the market, is that um, people are scrambling to buy dollars. So you're, you're seeing what I call a head fake rally, where people are buying dollars because they they desperately need them and they're willing to pay as much as 10% overnight funding to buy dollars. That's, that, that's, that's how desperate they are for dollars. So you're going to see a hell of a dollar rally. But that does not mean that people who are dollar collapsing are wrong. It's just a temporary short-term reaction to what's really going on, which is that there's a gigantic U.S. dollar short position out there that when this all comes home to roost, the dollar is going to spike. And it's dollar spike that potentially brings, brings about the end of the dollar. So I know that's a weird thing, but that's exactly what I think is how, how it's going to play out. And I'd like to argue that with other global financial assets, if we, if we look at them in kind of a zoomed out shift over time, Bitcoin is uncorrelated um, and it has a strong inverse relationship between the U.S. dollar, that's right, the greenback, and gold. And it's both well-documented and reliable. You have some of the, you know, Bitcoin OGs talking about how it's uncorrelated. They've been looking at this data for a really long time. And that's precisely why Bitcoin's characteristic of low correlation with other markets that further boosts the appeal of it. <laughs> I mean, Bitcoin becomes a hedge on the devaluation of the dollar. And correlations in Bitcoin returns are important, which is why you see the markets this week culminating in this exit of Bitcoin. They're moving it over to US dollars, ladies and gentlemen. This is why the market collapsed. Make no mistake, people are betting on Bitcoin long-term, but they want their cake and they want to eat it too. It's not that it's outside the US that it's worth more per se, it's, you know, over the last 30 years and they lost control of, of how many of those dollar claims are outstanding overseas and they don't even, have a good feel for how many there are. 
there have been people who've tried to quantify this. The, um, the Bank for International Settlements quantified it in 2009, um, so a year after the financial crisis. And just the European banks alone, they estimated the, at the high end of the range of their estimates was six and a half trillion. And that's the European banks alone. Um, and so China, obviously, we know through global trade that China has accumulated an enormous dollar short position as well and no idea how to measure it. So the balance came out with an article about a month ago, and they talked about when will the U.S. dollar collapse? And they specifically said that there is one trigger that could cause a collapse. This article explains that foreign countries own more than six trillion in U.S. debt. The two largest are China and Japan. If they dump their holdings of treasury notes, they could cause a panic leading to a collapse. China owns 1.1 trillion in U.S. treasuries. That's because China pegs the yuan to the dollar. This keeps the prices of its exports to the United States relatively cheap. But Japan also owns more than 1 trillion in treasuries. It also wants to keep the yen low to stimulate exports to the United States. Japan is moving out of a 15-year deflationary cycle and they would also need another export market to replace the United States because the economies of Japan and China are dependent on U.S. consumers. They know that if they sell their dollars, their action would further depress the value of the dollar, so their products still priced in yen or yen would cost relatively more in the United States. Their economies would suffer right now, and it's still in their best interest to hold on to their dollar reserves. And China and Japan are aware of their vulnerability. They're selling more to other Asian countries that are gradually becoming wealthier, but the United States is still the best market in the world. A sudden dollar collapse would create global economic turmoil. Investors would rush to other currencies, such as the euro or other assets, such as gold or commodities, or maybe there's something called Bitcoin. <laughs> That's where I think most people would rush to, to be quite honest. Let's get into coin analysis. So I'm sure you're wondering what I'm thinking about the price of Bitcoin right now. To be quite honest with you, I'm not in panic mode like everybody else out there. <laughs> um, I've seen bigger drops in this. This is nothing to be afraid of. Uh, 2K drop is nothing to be afraid of, to be honest with you. I think it's a joke. But besides what I think, let's give you some hard data. Um, currently right now, we're at 8000 $226. I uh, got Bitcoin dominance at 67%. I think what we're seeing now are people moving over into alts, quite honestly. Uh, even alts today are up, you know, in the green. Um, and I, I think this is this is normal. Uh, this is not a, a bad sign. This is not a bad sign for Bitcoin. This is not a bad sign for anybody holding Bitcoin or anybody holding alts. It's actually a good sign. What we're seeing is the price of Bitcoin tests some key levels. There's a 200-day moving average that we tested and we fell below. But the CME futures expired today. 
And with that, the price of Bitcoin went up like I was. <laughs> I didn't say that was going to happen, but I was really waiting to see if that was going to happen. And sure enough, it did happen, which has happened the last time the CME futures expired. That was right before the big rally. Now, there's a lot of people incredibly bearish right now. Some people are hoping for 3K Bitcoin. I wish. <laughs> Quite frankly, I wish we get to 3K Bitcoin. I just don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen just because we escaped this descending triangle. I could be wrong, but intuition and being in the space for a really long time counts for something. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. There's other people in this space that are incredibly bearish right now. Incredibly bearish. And they've been here just as long as I've been here. And they know when they see a drop like this, what this means. I think, and I think it's safe to say, the Bitcoin of the past is not the same Bitcoin charts that we're seeing today. The way Bitcoin is running these days, at least since I've noticed since 2018, this all looks very like computer trading. Like this doesn't look like a normal Bitcoin chart. And I know people like to look at these key resistant levels and support levels. And, and for the most part, I think those are right. But when I look at the Bitcoin charts these days, it just does not appear to be, you know, retail traders anymore trading in this market. This looks like you are seeing some heavy financial hitters out there trading in this market. I want to see next what happens when Bitcoin ends on this third quarter. Where are we at? Are we closer to 9K? Are we still in this 8K range? Are we down at 6 it is a good sign today that we are we are in the green now that the CME futures expired. This is a good sign. And I'm incredibly still bullish on this entire market and in Bitcoin. Probably the only person <laughs> in this space that believes we are headed towards another key range upwards. I could be wrong, but this is my interpretation of what's going on. Now, some key uh, support levels to, to make sure that you kind of look for is the 7K range. So look out for 7,031. That's going to be a key support level. If we fall below that, then I think if we fall below 7,000, then I think we are definitely headed down towards the 5,000, 3,000 levels, 6,000 levels. But right now, for right now, I'm waiting till Monday to see where everything is the end of the third quarter and what that looks like. Let's get into future predictions. Highly speculative token analysis. These are future predictions. So today I'm talking future predictions on a particular coin that I invested in today. Setting key support levels for Bitcoin is always a good thing. You can kind of catch um, catch yourself from uh, losing a potentially a lot more money than you than you would from the market going down, right? This is why I always talk about make sure to watch out for this support level or make sure to watch out for this support level. Because in doing so, you, you save, save more Bitcoin. And today I saved some Bitcoin 
and I used it towards purchasing Chainlink. That's right. I was really, really, really impressed with the uh, inside protocol that we did on Chainlink on yesterday's Solar Crypto episode. I had no idea uh, the CEO of Chainlink was uh, next level, seeing exactly the end goal of this decentralized Oracle service that they're creating. Uh, the, the vision on that guy is uh, there's very few people like that in this space. Um, it's, it's one of the main reasons why I'm, I'm a big fan of Stellar. Uh, it, it's, it's more so Jed McCaleb than anything else, the vision that he has for where you see Stellar going. And the same thing with Sergey. It's the vision of Chainlink that he has. He wants to build out and he wants to create a connection between smart contracts with real data right in the real world and to me that's an incredibly bullish idea if smart contracts are ever going to exist in the real world they'll need this this would be the lifeblood that that feeds into the smart contract this is necessary if it's not chainlink that does this there will be another company or open source project that does it this is necessary and he came up with the vision for it which is entirely <laughs> Next level thinking, it really is. Middleware for blockchain is a new buzzword that you'll hear time and time again going forward, thanks to Sergey. And when I saw the price of Chainlink, because I have some, you know, I had some in my portfolio already, but now it dipped below some key levels that I know that this is a good spot to buy. It was $1.66 today when I bought some. And um, now it's $1.68, and we've seen it run as high as, gosh, what was it, $4? Yeah, four-something here in July. And to me, that's a 4X. Could we get back to $4? Absolutely. Do I think it's going to happen overnight? Probably not. But I believe Chainlink might be something worth holding long-term. And when I say long-term, I mean the next bull run. Um this is why this is here in future predictions. These aren't guarantees. These aren't things that I'm, um, you know, expecting. These are more cryptocurrencies and projects that I'm holding for this next bull run and seeing what they become. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a speculative uh, call that I'm making right now on Chainlink. Could it all crash back down? Could they, uh, you know, dump on the retail investors? Absolutely, they could. Uh, there's over 350 link in circulation. 350 million. <laughs> 350 million in circulation. Um, there's going to be a total market cap of 1 billion at some point. So could they dump on retail investors? Absolutely, they probably already have. There's some VCs that got into Link at 11 cents, for Christ's sakes. So yeah, this is not gonna be a, a short-term kind of like, uh, well, let's let it go up to $5 and then, you know, then sell for more Bitcoin. No, let's let this go until the next bull run and see where we're at then. That's what I'm doing here with Link. Um, that's, that's my play. Uh, another one that I was looking at today, but I didn't purchase was Cardano. I feel like this is a really good entry point for Cardano, um, but I haven't, you know, really 
really dedicated some Bitcoin profits into that. I'm, I'm holding off on that. Uh, an, another one that uh, I just mentioned a while ago was Stellar. I think this is another good opportunity to get into Stellar because the last bull run, we got up to like 93 cents for Stellar. And I believe Cardano, well, actually, no, Cardano was at 93 cents. Stellar was at like at 68 cents or something like that. So that's an incredible price increase. Do we think, do I think we can get back at those levels? I think so. I think they've been around long enough and they have some really clever guys at the helm trying to make it all work. And the fact that uh, Charles just came out with Plutus for Cardano today shows that they are serious about smart contracts and taking on Ethereum, which is also good for the market. So uh, this is why I think uh, a good time for people to get into alts right now because you're getting them at the you're getting if you get some key alts you're getting them at really bottom barrel prices um this is where you make the most money in this next bull run is at these levels uh, do i think we can get back here again probably i mean it's very likely we'll get back here again after it rises you know but at once this bull run starts and let's hope it happens here in 2020 <laughs> we'll see Still a long runway to go, but if it does, uh, then we will see where all these uh, alts will lead us to. And that is one of the most exciting things about crypto is seeing alts run. Don't get me wrong. Seeing Bitcoin run is a beautiful thing. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point for a lot of us in the space that I kind of take it for granted. I'm spoiled by it. But when you see alts run that you're holding, oh, that is some next level excitement. <laughs> it truly is. But again, these are all future predictions and should not be taken as investment advice. Okay. The level of fear that I've seen over the past couple of days with my fellow, you know, commentators on this space is just baffling to me. <laughs> I don't know what drives their worrisome aspects to where they see this market's going. Maybe it's because they're not paying attention to the underlying technology behind it all. Maybe it's because of my technology background, I see how inevitable this is. I think working here a nine to five every day and seeing how technology functions now in the real world and seeing where it could function in the future, and then seeing how they correlate with the current implementations of like servers or user databases or networks and seeing how truly, how centralized we really are, I think would scare a lot of people. Decentralization in the future is very key and these segmentations and sandboxes will exist because there's a need for decentralized identity and there's a need decentralized databases and there's a need for all of this. These are necessary right now and we need them now, but Technology's not there yet. Yeah.